This is Creative Mornings, a podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by Wix.com. With Wix, it's easy to create your own stunning website and showcase your creativity exactly the way you want. Just go to Wix, W-I-X.com, to create your stunning website today. Wix, it's easy and free. Hey everyone, welcome to the Creative Mornings Podcast. This is Matt, and this week we welcome back Simon Sinek. If you've been following our show, you might remember that in season one, we featured Simon's Creative Mornings New York City talk from 2012, titled Love Your Work. This time around, we'll hear Simon speak to Creative Mornings San Diego, when the global theme was transparency. But before we get into that... Hello. Simon. Hi, Matt. How you doing? I'm thank you. How are you? I'm well, thank you, and thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. I have to say, hearing that we would be featuring a second talk from you didn't come as much of a surprise since meeting Creative Mornings founder Tina Roth-Eisenberg and working on the first season of this podcast, I've become very familiar with your work, and you plus Creative Mornings really makes for an appropriate pairing. Well, I have huge admiration for uh, what Tina started and what has spread uh, around the world. Um, you know, I'm a great believer in, in, in people taking accountability for, for our own lot. And, and I love that, that the reason the Creative Mornings uh, idea spreads is because people want it to, not because anybody's being forced to or incentivized to. During this talk, you get into the topic of millennials and the pitfalls of that generation, as well as older generations' sort of obligation to show empathy. Well, you know, everyone deserves it. <laughs> right. Of course. Of course. But I'm curious, since you're facing a room full of creatives, many of whom are millennials, who either have businesses or are actively hustling slash seeking inspiration from people like yourself, did you feel at any point like you were preaching to the choir? Well, I mean, people come to Creative Mornings expecting to hear something that will help their business or some sort of creative perspective. Perspective. I, I'm not 100% sure that, uh, that they showed up expecting um, what I talked about. And some of them may be aware that that some of the things that I talked about were a challenge to them, and some of them may not under, uh, may not have seen that those things were a challenge to them. They just understood that that they were struggling in various points of their lives, which is why the talk resonated. So outside of the Creative Mornings uh, environment, it still resonates because people are people, and everyone wants to feel trusted and trusting and valuable and feel like their work matters and feel like they matter and feel like they're growing. So I think the themes are relatively universal. Simon does a great job of putting this millennial discussion into perspective, and we'll also be sharing a very insightful Q&A that followed, and a little bit more of our conversation as well. So right now, here you have it, Simon Sinek from Creative Mornings, San Diego. Enjoy. Thank you very much. Um, So two of the statements said previously are both true. I um, did speak at the first um, TEDx San Diego, and I have dressed as Superman at (laughs) Comic-Con. Both are true. Um, So I get a question at every single talk that I give and every single meeting that I have. Um, Invariably, someone will ask me the millennial question. Apparently, and most of you in here, I think, were born after the year 1984, right? Which makes you millennials. Um, 94-ish. 84-ish, I mean. Um, Apparently, your generation um, is unleadable. 
apparently you confound leaders. And I travel around talking about this thing called leadership, and apparently you're the one they have no idea what to do with, um, which I think is funny. And so in, what they've started to do then is um, ask you what you want. And um, you reply back, free food and bean bags. <laughs> Open plan. And so they do that, and yet nothing changes. And so instead of trying to figure it out and try and understand you guys, they accuse you of being entitled. They accuse you of being narcissistic. Um, sometimes accuse you of being lazy. I've heard that one. Um, and I think that they are completely wrong. I think what they haven't spent the time to do is to practice empathy, which ironically is the first criteria of being a good leader, which is you have to be good at empathy. And so when I get asked this question all the time, it only makes sense that I should empathize and try and have an answer, right? So here's what I tell everybody. I've broken it down into sort of four observations. Parenting, technology, impatience, and environment. Many of this young generation, of this millennial generation, um, were subject to what has been described as a failed parenting strategy. Some of you and many of your friends were raised being told that you were special. And you were told that you can have whatever you want just because you want it. Many schools gave performance, uh, no, participation ribbons. So in other words, kids got medals for coming in last. And the science on this is good. We know what it does is it devalues the feeling and the medal for the person who actually works hard to come in first, and it embarrasses the person who comes in last because they know they don't deserve it, and it makes them feel worse. Some kids got into honors classes not because they deserved it, but because their parents complained. And some kids got A's not because they earned them, but because the teachers didn't want to deal with the parents. And then you graduate. And you get a job. And in an instant, your entire self-view is shattered. Because many kids find out that they're not special. They find out that they can't have whatever they want just because they want it. There's nothing when you come in last. You get no medal for coming in last. And your parents cannot help you get a promotion. <laughs> and so what the result is, is an entire generation where there's a disproportionately high number of people growing up with lower self-confidence than previous generations because this entire self-image is completely shattered instantaneously. And so much so that I actually hear stories of people's parents filling out their job applications for them and other things, right? It's that bad, right? Then you combine it with the second observation, which is technology. We know that when we engage with social media or our cell phones, a chemical in our body called dopamine is released, right? It's what makes us feel good, right? Dopamine is the same chemical that is released in our bodies when we find something we're looking for, like your keys, when you go on Google, when you hit the goal or win the game, that yes, this sense of joy or in sort of, that, that's dopamine. Well, we know that we get a hit of dopamine when we uh, engage with social media or when our phones go buzz, bing, flash, or beep. That's why if you're feeling a little bit down, you pull out your phone and you send 10 texts to 10 friends, you know, hi, 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 hi. <laughs> and you hope that somebody texts you back because when you, they do, it feels good, right? 
There are other things that release dopamine. Alcohol, nicotine, gambling all release dopamine. It's why they feel good, and almost all addictions are dopamine-based addictions. We also know that almost all alcoholics discovered alcohol when they were teenagers. You see, when we're very, very young, the only approval we need is the approval of our parents. Then when we go through adolescence, we make this transition where we now need the approval of our peers. Very frustrating for our parents, very important for us. It allows us to acculturate outside of our immediate families into the broader tribe. It is a time of high stress and high anxiety, and we're supposed to learn to rely on our friends. Some people, quite by accident, discover alcohol and the numbing effects of dopamine. And unfortunately, that connection becomes hardwired. And then for the rest of their lives, every time they face significant stress, they don't turn to a person, they turn to the bottle, right? Now, as I said before, we know that social media and cell phones release dopamine. Now, we have age restrictions on alcohol, we have age restrictions on tobacco, and we have age restrictions on gambling, but we have no age restrictions on social media and cell phones. It's as if an entire generation who are going through adolescence, their parents have thrown open the liquor cabinet and said, try the vodka to help you get through the teenage years. <laughs> That's what social media and cell phones do. So unfortunately, for too many people, that connection is becoming hardwired. And as they grow up, when they face significant stress in their lives, instead of learning to turn to a person, they turn to a device, right? Where we seek solace in social media, where we'll check an Instagram post, how many likes we're getting. We'll check, and 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 we'll check. And sometimes our own self-worth comes from how many followers we have. It can become devastating to us when somebody unfollows us, right? Um, the only way that we... We, we, we stand away from stress when we face it. In other words, an entire generation is growing up having not practiced or learned coping mechanisms for stress. This is very, very serious for social animals that need each other, where we haven't learned those skills. It's, and it's even worse, because if you want to go on a date, you don't have to learn to be like, hey. <laughs> you just swipe right. You just got a date. You can have four dates in an evening, right? And if you don't like the person, you don't have to learn to say no when you mean yes, and yes when you mean no, and yes when you, you just swipe left. It's done. In other words, the social skills aren't developing. And so there's an entire generation that's growing up with lower self-confidence, going into a workforce, having their self-image shattered, not knowing necessarily how to deal with all the stress that they're facing of growing up and starting a career and finding out where you fit and all of that good stuff. And instead of turning to a person, we're turning to devices. And the results are starting to show up in the statistics. We know that suicide is on the rise amongst this generation. We know that accidental death due to, um, due to overdoses is on the rise amongst this generation. Depression is on the rise amongst this generation. Universities are suffering an epidemic where they're dealing with disproportionately high numbers of students than they've ever dealt with ever before, taking leaves of absence due to depression. And then to compound the effect, it's a generation that's grown up with filters, Facebook and Instagram, and we curate our own lives and present to the world how we want to be seen, and we make ourselves look good, and we make the weather look better, and the sunsets are always more bright in Instagram than they were in real life. 
In other words, we're good at presenting ourselves as we're not, but how we want to be seen. And so everybody thinks this generation is strong and confident. And all the companies we go work for, they think we have it all figured out, and we certainly sound, I say we. I only dress like a 16-year-old. <laughs> this generation presents itself as having all the answers, and yet they don't. And stress runs high, and they don't know how to ask for help. And gets worse. Then you add in the manner in which so many people grew up in this generation with a sense of impatience. Now, as I said before, you're often accused of being entitled. And it certainly seems that way. But I think it's a misreading of the tea leaves. You've grown up in a world of instant gratification. You want to buy something, you go on Amazon, it shows up the next day. You want to watch a movie? Don't check movie times. You just stream it whenever you want to watch it. TV shows? You don't wait week to week to week. You can binge watch the whole weekend. And like I said, even dating is just a swipe to the right, right? Everything is instant. Everything is instant gratification. And the problem is too many people have applied that sense of instant gratification to their careers and to their lives. And the problem is there ain't no app for that. I hear from this generation that too many people struggle to form their words, not mine, struggle to form deep, meaningful relationships. Many will admit that most of their friendships are superficial. Many will admit that their friends would cancel on them if something better came along. Many would admit that they don't have deep, trusting, loving relationships with their own friends. That's because it's a journey. I talk to so many smart, fantastic, ambitious, idealistic, hardworking kids and they're right out of college, they're in their entry-level jobs, and I'll ask them, how's it going? And they'll say, I think I'm going to quit. And I'm like, why? And they say to me, I'm not making an impact. I'm like, you know you've been here eight months, right? <laughs> they treat the sense of fulfillment, or even love, like it's a scavenger hunt, like it's something you look for. My millennial friends, they've gone through so many jobs, they're either getting fired, I mean it was mutual, Or they're quitting because they're not making an impact or they're not finding the thing they're looking for. Or they're not feeling fulfilled as if it's a scavenger hunt. Love, a job you find joy from, is not something you discover. It's not like, I found love. Here it is. I found a job I love. That's not how it works. Both of those things require hard work. You are in love because you work very hard every single day of your life to stay in love. You find a job that brings you ultimate joy because you work hard every single day to serve those around you and you maintain that joy. It's not a discovery. But the problem is the sense of impatience. It's as if an entire generation is standing at the foot of a mountain. They know exactly what they want. They can see the summit. What they can't see is the mountain. This large, immovable object. That doesn't mean you have to do your time. That's not what I'm talking about. Take a helicopter, climb, I don't care. But there's still a mountain. Life, career fulfillment, relationships are journeys. The problem is, this entire generation has an institutionalized sense of impatience. And do they have the patience to go on the journey to maintain love, to feel fulfilled? Or do they just quit and on to the next? Dump and on to the next? Ghost and on to the next? And by the way, ghosting means the lack of skill to have a confrontation. 
You date somebody for six months, eight months, and then just stop replying. Just delete them from everything. Now, for the person who's doing the ghosting, oh, that's certainly easier than a confrontation. But the person on the receiving end of the ghosting, it's like there's a death. They're suddenly shunned. There's panic. They call out. They're worried. They call out. They're worried. They think it's you. They think it's them. Do you have any idea the destruction that we reap on people by ghosting them? And then because there's the lack of social skills to call out and ask for help, they internalize and it makes them feel awful to the point. At the worst, they will kill themselves. Slightly one level down, they'll get depressed. But the lowest level that we can hope for is they will go through life. And I'm not talking about ghosting. I'm talking an entire generation that if we don't fix this, we'll go through life where everything's just fine. My friendships are fine. My work is fine. You know, same old, same old. Nothing's ever amazing. And the scavenger hunt continues. And then you go to the fourth observation, the most egregious of all of them, environment. We're taking a generation that has lower self-esteem. We're taking a generation that has a lack of coping mechanisms to deal with stress. We're dealing with a generation that wants all those things fixed immediately. And we're placing them in work environments that values money more than people. Do you know that most of the business philosophies, most of the business theories that we embrace and see as standard today are not standard. They're theories left over from the 80s and 90s. The concept of shareholder supremacy was a theory proposed in the late 1970s. It was popularized in the 80s and 90s. The concept of using mass layoffs to balance the books did not exist in the United States prior to the 1980s. It did not exist. It became popular in the 80s and 90s. The 80s and 90s were boom years. Anyone could make money. Relative peace, a kinder, gentler, cold war. And so all of the business theories that were put forth were very, very selfish and all about enriching ourselves. And they worked for those times. But these times are different. These are not peaceful times. These are not boom years. This is, there's globalization and the internet which has now made everything vastly more complicated and those theories do not work anymore. Worse, they're having side effects. It's really bad. Because what we do is we destroy corporate cultures. The idea of using mass layoffs, can you imagine sending someone home and saying, I'm sorry, I can no longer provide for our family because the company missed its arbitrary projections this year. That's what we're doing. That's like a, a coach prioritizing the needs of the fans over the needs of the players, hoping to build a great team. It doesn't work. We dismantled things like the Glass-Steagall Act. Glass-Steagall was passed after the Great Depression to prevent another Great Depression from happening. It was dismantled in the 80s and the 90s in the name of profit. Okay? Do you know how many stock market crashes we had between the Great Depression and the dismantling of Glass-Steagall? The answer is zero. And since they dismantled Glass-Steagall, we had 87, the dot-com crash, 2008. We've had three stock market crashes because we've moved the safety mechanisms that prevent stock market crashes from happening, all in the name of individual advancement and profit. And these are the corporate cultures we've built. Corporate cultures that value numbers over people. 
And they are not standard business practices. They are new, and they are broken, and they are dangerous. And we're asking a young, wonderful, ambitious, amazing generation that needs us to work in these environments. Whether we like it or not, we have to take responsibility for the bad hand that you've been dealt. It is up to the companies to create an environment in which you can build your self-confidence. It is up to the companies to create an environment in which you can learn coping mechanisms and learn how to build strong, close relationships with people with whom you work, that you will eventually love and sacrifice to see that they gain. It is in these environments that we will learn the patience and the hard work that it takes to find fulfillment in our lives, to find a sense of purpose, a sense of joy. Yes, it's all fine and good that my generation and older generations say to you things like, well, you're the future leaders. We're the leaders now. We're the ones in control of the corporate environments now. And we're making your lives worse. I don't want you to jump from job to job to job to job. You will never find what you're looking for. It's not a scavenger hunt. I don't want you to go from relationship to relationship to relationship. What I want you to do is stand up and demand that the places in which you work lead you properly. Nobody wants to wake up in the morning and be managed. We want to wake up in the morning and be led. And we have a total leadership crisis in America. Politics is just the mirror reflection. We get the politicians we deserve. We're the divided ones. We're the selfish ones. We're the broken ones. We're the ones who would sooner sacrifice somebody else so that we may gain. It's us. And until we're willing to do the hard work of repairing the world around us, our country, our politics, our businesses will not fix. Which leads me to my second point. Understanding the game we're playing. This game called work, or life, or love, whichever one you want, or all of them. In game theory, there are two kinds of games. There are finite games, and there are infinite games. A finite game is defined as known players, fixed rules, and an agreed-upon objective. Baseball. We all agree what the rules are, and at the end of nine innings, whoever has more runs, we declare the winner, and the game is over. No one ever says, wait, 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 if we can just play three more innings, I know we can come back and win. Doesn't happen. Right? You have winners and you have losers. Right? Then there is an infinite game. An infinite game is defined as known and unknown players. The rules are changeable. And the objective is to keep the game in play, to perpetuate the game. When you pit a finite player versus a finite player, the system is stable. Baseball is stable. When you pit an infinite player versus an infinite player, the system is also stable. The Cold War was stable because there can be no winners and losers. It doesn't exist. That's not a scenario we want. And so you keep the game in play to keep it stable. And in an infinite game, because there are no winners or losers, what happens is players drop out when they run out of the will or the resources to play. And then they're replaced by other players. The game perpetuates. The players change out. Problems arise when you pit a finite player versus an infinite player. Because the finite player is playing to win, and the infinite player is playing to stay in the game. And the finite player will always get uh, frustrated. They will find themselves in quagmire. This was the United States in Vietnam. We were fighting to win. They were fighting for their lives. 
This was the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. They were fighting to beat the Mujahideen. The Mujahideen would fight for as long as was necessary. Now, let's look at the game of business. The game of business is, by its very definition, an infinite game. It has pre-existed before every single company on this planet ever existed, and it will outlast every single company on this planet. But if you listen to the words of most companies, they don't know the game they're in. You listen to companies, they want to be number one. Based on what metrics? Based on what time frame? Revenues? Market share? Square footage? Number of employees? Based on a quarter, a year? Five years, 10 years, 50 years? I didn't agree to those standards. You can't suddenly just arbitrarily say we're number one. No one else agreed to the standards. It's nonsense to beat our competition. Based on what? And they study their competition, trying to outdo their competition. And yet, I've never heard of a company that's taken down by the competitors they know. They're always taken down by the competitors they don't know. Do you think MySpace knew that Facebook existed? They were worried about Friendster. <laughs> you can't make strategic decisions from studying your competition. You can make tactical decisions from studying your competition, but not strategic decisions. But when you listen to the way most companies play the game, they're in the wrong game. That's why they get frustrated. The great organizations understand that they're playing to stay in the game. Jim Senegal, the founder of Costco, says Wall Street's in the business of making the quarter of the year. We're in the business of building a company for the next 50 years. The understanding of knowing what game you're in radically changes the kinds of decisions you make and the way you see the world. It is also tremendously confidence building. Let me give you a true story. I spoke at a education and education. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I spoke at an education summit for Microsoft. I also spoke at an education summit for Apple. At the, education for my, at the Education Summit for Microsoft, I would say that 70% of the executives spent about 70% of their presentations talking about how to beat Apple. At the Apple Education Summit, 100% of the executives spent 100% of their presentations talking about how to help teachers teach and how to help students learn. One is playing this way and one is playing that way. One is playing finite, and the other one is playing infinite. Gets which one gets frustrated. <laughs> so at the end of my talk at Microsoft, they gave me a gift. They gave me the new Zoom when it was a thing. <laughs> and let me tell you, this thing was spectacular. It was the most elegant piece of technology I'd ever used. The user interface was incredible. The design was spectacular. I absolutely loved it. It was easy to use, and it was bright and gorgeous and fantastic. It didn't work on iTunes, which is a different problem, so I couldn't use it, but, but it was amazing. <laughs> and elegant. My god, it was elegant. So I'm sitting in the back of a taxi with a very senior Apple executive, sort of employee number 12 kind of guy. And, you know, I like to stir pots. So I turned to him, I said, you know, Microsoft gave me their new Zoom. And it is so much better than your iPod Touch. And he turned to me and he said, I have no doubt. Conversation over.
Because the infinite player understands sometimes you're ahead and sometimes you're behind. Sometimes your product is better and sometimes it's worse. The goal isn't to be the best every day. The goal isn't to, out, to outdo your competition every day. That's a finite construction. If I had said to Microsoft, I've got the new iPod Touch and it's so much better than your Zoom, they would have said, can we see it? What does it do? React, 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 react. Finite players play to, be be to beat the people around them. Infinite players play to be better than themselves. To wake up every single day and say, how can we make our company a better version of itself today than it was yesterday? How can we create a product this week that's better than the product we created last week? We also have to play the infinite game. It's not about being ranked number one. It's not about having more followers on Twitter than your friends. It's not about outdoing anyone. It's about how to outdo yourself. It's not about selling more books or getting more TED views than somebody else. It's about how to make sure that the work that you're producing is better than the work you produced before. You are your competition. And that is what ensures you stay in the game the longest. And that is what ensures you find joy. Because the joy comes not from comparison, but from advancement. The problem is, the problem is, we're human beings, and we love to compare. We, can't, we love a ranking. Oh, we love a ranking. Top 10 this, top 100 that. Oh, we love a ranking. You know? Every industry has got its own rankings, and we love to be on those rankings, even though most of the rankings are arbitrary, and you can pretty much foil most of them. You can buy your way onto most of them. Right? But I'm on the list, right? They did a study, they who do all the studies. Um, <laughs> They did a study where they asked people if they wanted a free $400,000 house on a block where all the other houses are $100,000, or a free million-dollar house on a block where all the other houses are $4 million. Most people took the $400,000 house. We just love to be better than each other. But that is a depressing way to live a life. What I urge you to do, if you are not a millennial, is to have a little empathy for the millennials around you. They were dealt a bad hand, and unfortunately, we have to help them build their confidence, find their patience, and break the habit from their technology so that they can learn the social skills that they need to live happy, joyful lives. If you are a millennial, it's not you. <laughs> and take care of the millennial friends that you have around you because they're not mad at you and they're not bad people. They were dealt the same bad hand that you were dealt. Don't demand that they take care of you, take care of them. And that's part of the problem. There's an entire section in the bookshop called self-help, and there's no section in the bookshop called help others. And the way that we fix the problems in the world is not by trying to demand that help people help us. How can I lose 10 pounds? How can I find love? How can I find the job that of, my, of my dreams? That's what all the books say. No, it should be, how can I help my friend live a healthy lifestyle? How can I help my friend find a lifetime of fulfillment? That's what it's about. It's about service to others, because that's what it means to be human. Everything about our makeup, our biology and our anthropology is designed to get us to look after each other. 
Everything about our makeup is designed to get us to take care of each other. That's why an event like this feels better than watching it online. Because we get to sit next to each other. We get to sit with each other. It's nicer for me too. It's much nicer for me to be here with you. Because we're social. But we all have a responsibility in this tribe. If you want to have a happy, successful, fulfilling, confident life, you have to commit yourself to take care of the people around you. That's just how it works. Good? We'll share the Q&A from this event as well as the rest of my conversation with Simon in just a minute. But first, we have to take care of some business. And this week's episode is made possible by MailChimp. This is Tyler, VP of Marketing at Sticker Mule. Sticker Mule is the fastest and easiest way to buy custom stickers. Uh, we also have buttons, magnets, and most recently we added poly mailers. What's a poly mailer? It's a popular choice for e-commerce stores and merchants to ship their goods. Uh, they're lightweight, they're flexible, they're really easy to ship. So a lot of customers prefer them over boxes. And for our deal emails and our weekly emails, we only use MailChimp. And as VP of marketing, it's you who handles the MailChimp account? Yeah, I actually started working with Sticker Mule specifically to send emails. So that is my background, and uh, email's been one of the ways that Sticker Mule has grown really fast. Oh, well, then congratulations. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so our emails are very simple. We use plain text emails. It's like, hey, we just added this new product to Sticker Mule. Uh, to celebrate, we're giving away a $10 credit. Uh, when you tweet about it, here's the link. Check it out. I think it's easy to overthink sending emails, uh, and people sometimes worry about the copy and the design a lot. But what's worked for us is just sending them consistently. And whether you want to go with the fancy images or just text, MailChimp makes both options easy. Yeah. With over 15 million users around the world, MailChimp offers features and integrations that help you send beautiful and powerful marketing emails, automated messages, and targeted campaigns. It's totally free to get started, no expiring trial, and no credit card required. Learn more at MailChimp.com. The question was, if you're in an environment where you have a mix of finite and infinite, um, what do you do? Well, first of all, um, there are always finite games within the infinite game, which is fine. But it's also understanding the greater game you're in. And the answer is don't worry about the game that other people are playing. Play your game, right? The goal is not to try and convince anybody that they're in the wrong game, or they have to play by different rules, or that they're bad leaders and we're gonna help them, right? We have to take responsibility for only the things we can control. And the most, the biggest thing we can control is ourselves, right? We can't even control our friends. The only thing we can do is look after our friends and empathize with our friends, which we don't do, especially over text with no tone of voice or things like that, right? We re my God, we're terrible reactors. Everybody's against us and we like to, you know, we like to say our thing. I mean, here's something that I find amazing. I, I don't understand it. I find it amazing, this, the, the social thing, right? So on Father's Day, the number of people that will post pictures on various social media of them when they were kids with their dads and be like, Happy Father's Day. I love you, Dad. You're the best dad ever. Your dad's not on Instagram. <laughs> Why not on Father's Day just call your dad and tell him I love him? And then post the picture if you need to, right? Like, I'm sure you love your father. No one will doubt that you love your dad if you didn't post it. It's Father's Day and I didn't see a post from you. But I digress. The point is, worry about the game you're in. 
and take care of the people around you. When I say take care of them, that doesn't mean convince them. I mean literally take care of them. Worry about them and practice empathy. And put yourself out there to help them. Right? Not do it for them. Help them. Right? Um, and what you find is when that happens, small pockets of people start working at higher performance and higher levels than the people around them. So the numbers-driven folks tend to leave them alone because their numbers are better. Right? And by the way, I'm okay with money as long as money comes second. Money is like fuel. It, if you have it, it helps advance things. But it's not, it's not the reason we go to work. We go to work for each other. Right? Um, so worry about that and don't worry about them. They'll either drop out of the gate. Every single bankruptcy, every single merger and acquisition is somebody basically saying we no longer have the money or the will to, to play and so we're going to drop out of the game or we have to combine our resources with somebody else to stay in the game. That's what that is. Then just leave them. Just leave them. Yep. Yeah, let's go in the wherever. <laughs> Whoever you give to the mic to is the person whose questions I will answer. Oh. Um, coming from a millennial, I know you said that it would be the company's responsibility to try to teach us how to be patient, but do you possibly have a teachable moment on how to maintain patience and fulfillment in that journey? I think we always, we always yes. are seeking more. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Okay, let's do a really, really, really easy one, okay? Uh, simple, not easy. Um, can I borrow your phone? Can I borrow somebody's phone? Oh, look. What if I were to hold my phone while I'm giving this talk? It's not beeping, it's not buzzing, it's not flashing, and I'm not chunking it. I'm simply holding it. Do you feel like you're the most important thing to me right now? No, you do not. And that's the point. There is a subconscious reaction to the device. It literally makes people feel that they are not important simply by having it out. So what happens is we walk down hallways, phone in hand because we're addicted, can't possibly leave it behind, Right? I mean, if you need to go to the bathroom and you hold it in to find your phone to take with you, you're an addict, my friend. <laughs> That's screwed up. There is a subconscious reaction to the device. So when we're, when we're walking down the hall and our friend says, hey, can I ask you a question? You go, sure, what's on your mind? It actually makes them feel that they don't matter, so go like this. Sure, what's on your mind? And if you don't have a pocket, find a shelf and say, sure, what's on your mind? It's an incredibly powerful thing. There should be zero phones on the table in a meeting, at lunch, at dinner, if you are meeting with or eating with anyone besides yourself. Because when you put the phone on the table, you basically say to everyone else on the table, you're not the most important thing to, remain, most important thing to me right now, and they can feel it. We've all felt it. We've all felt it when we're walking down the street with a friend, and they pull out their phone, and we feel stupid, so we pull out our phone. <laughs> Go watch people. I watch people in restaurants. Thank you. I watch people in restaurants, and I see two people on the phone the whole time. 20 minutes, they'll be on the phone talking to people who aren't there, or they're on Facebook, I'm watching, they're on Instagram, checking Instagram when they're at dinner with someone and then they complain that they're lonely, right? And then they, put, they both put their phones away, but it takes time to start the engagement, you know, there's a little bit of, so they just sit there quietly, both gazing off into space while they eat their, 
And it's what happens in meetings, right? In meetings, we sit waiting for the meeting to start more like this because Bob's running a couple minutes late. Okay, Bob's here. Right? That's not how relationships form. Relationships form, we're sitting waiting, and you're just sitting there, and you turn to somebody and be like, how's that thing going with that client? You'll be like, oh, actually pretty good. Yeah, thanks. Hey, what about your dad? Wasn't he in hospital? Oh my God, yeah, thanks. No, everything's all right. Thanks for that. That's where relationships form. It's all the little, 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 little stuff that by themselves mean nothing, but in combination build a relationship. It's kind of like brushing your teeth, right? Intensity versus consistency, right? Like if you go to the gym for nine hours, you will not get into shape. But if you work out every day for 20 minutes, you will get into shape. The problem is I don't know when. <laughs> Simon, how long does it take to make a friend? I don't know. How long does it take to fall in love? No clue. I know it takes more than a week, but I know that it takes less than a year to make a friend. You know? Uh, but the problem is I don't know exactly know when. It's the little stuff that adds up that makes those things happen, like brushing your teeth. If you only go to the dentist twice a year, all your teeth will fall out, right? Because the intensity is not enough. But we like intense things because it's easy to measure. I know exactly the day I'm going to the dentist. I know I'll be there for about an hour. And I know my teeth feel good and look good when I walk out. That's why when we teach leadership, we have a two-day off-site. We bring in a bunch of speakers. Everybody's like, that was amazing. I'm a leader now. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not how it works. Intensity cannot replace consistency. Brushing your teeth for two minutes, in the, once in the morning and once in the evening, by itself does nothing. Absolute. How many times do I have to brush my teeth twice a day to keep my teeth healthy? I don't know. I don't know. But you just got to do it. And the same thing is about relationships. Every single meeting you sit in, if there's no phones on the table at all, I'm not sure exactly when, but I can promise you the team will start to come together. I can promise you you'll start to trust each other more and like each other more. I promise you. I promise you that if you leave your phone at home when you go out for dinner with your friends, because who are you calling? And if you need an Uber, you only need one person to bring a phone or leave it in your bag turned off at the, for the entire time until you need the Uber. And if you do have to, have to, have to take a picture of your food, <laughs> By all means, take the picture. You don't have to post it now. You can post it later. And don't play that stupid game where you're like, hey, let's go to a movie. Absolutely, I'll pull up my phone and look at movie times. And you see you have three texts, and you can't help yourself, but you've got to just check. Are you checking movie times? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's playing. Playing at 8 o'clock. Right? Get rid of all of that. You'll actually find it easier to ignore the temptation if you practice keeping the phone away. It's like an alcoholic. We cannot trust our willpower. We're just not that strong. When an alcoholic gets rid of all the alcohol in their house because we cannot trust our willpower. If you, if you uh, check your phone uh, when you wake up in the morning before you say good morning to the person lying next to you, you are an addict. You're an addict. If you have to sleep with your phone next to your bed, and you check it constantly, and you wake up in the middle of the night because you can't sleep, and the first thing you do is check your phone, it's because you're an addict. Charge your phone in the living room. Oh, but it's my alarm clock. <laughs> Buy an alarm clock. They're like $8. <laughs> you will sleep better. You will wake up happier. 
and you are practicing the consistency of taking care of each other, making them feel heard and special, and making friends. And by the way, you know what happens to you when you do that? People like you more, and you feel better, and you feel more confident, and you're making more friends too. But somebody has to go first. That's the risk. That's called leadership, the person who goes first. I'll give shorter answers. <laughs> Let's do something in the front. And then the back, I expect to hear from you too. All right, well, uh, first, thank you so much for this. This is awesome. Thank you for enjoying it. Uh, just out of curiosity, so you speak to businesses and companies and leadership teams and employees and stuff. Uh, without mentioning names, I don't want to put you on the spot, but have you gone and talked to a company that's been in trouble and then spoken to their team and then checked in on them after you've spoken to their leadership team? And what did that look like? Did you notice a noticeable change? Did they come to you and tell you that, this has helped our organization out and our culture is much improved because of it. You mean, does my shit work? <laughs> I mean, sure. Here's the problem with my stuff. You got to do it. And I am not, I'm not anybody's, like, you know, mom or dad. I, I'm not going to do it for you. And I have a very laissez-faire approach of it. I once had a, I once had a client, this is a, a bunch of years ago, that said, what guarantee do I have that your stuff will work? To which my answer was, none. It's like, I, I'm giving you a tool. You can, it's like a hammer. You can use it broadly or narrowly. You can build a table. You can build a house. It's the same tool. You can use it for marketing. You can use it to completely revitalize your entire culture. And even though I'm going to sell you the most beautiful hammer, I'm not going to guarantee the structural integrity of the house. Right? It's your business. You want to ignore all my stuff? Ignore it. I don't care. It's your, and if your business collapses, you know what happens to me? Nothing. Like, I don't mean to be cold about it. Like, of course I want the people I work with to do well, but it's not mine. It's theirs. And I take no emotional responsibility for the decisions they make. So yes, there are many people that I've had the pleasure of working with, some who worked for dysfunctional organizations, that went on the hard journey of completely changing the way they lead and completely revitalizing their culture, and it has great success. It's not because of me, it's because of them, right? At the same time, there are many people who came in like, what an amazing speech, and did nothing. You know, thanks, that was great, you know? And I don't, it's, of course it's going to fail, you know? So I, I think that we, we have too much, especially in the consulting world or the design world, everybody's so paternalistic about it. I, I, designers are famous for this, right? They get so personally offended when the client chooses the wrong thing. Oh, they're such idiots. Don't they know we're trying to help them? <laughs> or who cares? Like, it's their frickin' business, right? That's what you find, I've, I've had that. Instead of arguing with somebody for them to make the right choice, which, because we genuinely want to help them, what I have found is if you push the accountability onto, because when we argue, we're taking accountability. This is better. This will help you. We're taking responsibility, accountability. But if we say, look, we've been doing this a bunch of years. We know more about design than you do. Um, I'm telling you for every reason that I can outline for you why this will help you more. But if you don't want to do it, that's fine. It's your business. Do what you want. 
The minute you switch the accountability and put it all on them, amazingly, they're much more open to your opinion. <laughs> because now they're responsible. So, uh, it's not me, it's them. It's like all my failed relationships. <laughs> one last question. One last question. I don't care. Pick one. Go to the back. Let's do someone from the back that's brave. Hi. Um, I have a question about how you deal with these things when it's more about relationships versus business. So if you have a relationship that you actually care about, but it's infinite player versus finite player, do you have any tools? If you've already accepted, you can't change uh, the person. <laughs> okay, let's just make one little correction, okay? There is no difference between business and personal relationships. We have artificially bifurcated our lives into my work life and my home life. It's you. The only difference between your work life and your home life is, are the clothes you wear and the table you sit at, right? The reason your friends love you is the same reason your colleagues trust you. It's you, right? So all the advice and counsel that I offer that's about business is actually about us. And all the stuff that I'm offering about us is actually about business. In other words, it's human beings looking to feel safe around other human beings. And that's the most important thing to remember, which is what we all desire more than anything else is to feel safe amongst our own. And the reason we have work-life imbalance is because we don't feel safe at work, but we do feel safe at home. That's the imbalance. Yoga won't fix that. Right? It's we want to have a, an environment in which we operate, one with our friends, one with our colleagues, in which we feel safe, that we can be ourselves, right? And so what you have to do is commit yourself. If you have a friend that, there's two, there's two choices. Sometimes we have friends that shouldn't be our friends. It happens, right? Sometimes we have jobs we shouldn't have. Like, it happens, right? So don't be afraid of that. But that doesn't mean we dump all our friends, right? What that means is we take responsibility to make sure that they feel safe to express themselves and be themselves. And I think very often we don't. I think very often we have created such a judgmental environment, right? Um, that people are afraid to be themselves. They're afraid to express vulnerability. And this word is bandied around so much, I think we've forgotten what it means. Vulnerability doesn't mean walking around crying, right? That's not what vulnerability Vulnerability means is the willingness to raise your hand and say, I made a mistake. The willingness to raise your hand and say, I don't know what I'm doing. The willingness to raise your hand and say, I'm afraid. The willingness to raise your, their hand and say to you, I felt tension when I went out with you last night. And I don't know if it's something I did, but I'm afraid because I love you and I don't like the way this feels. As opposed to what we usually do is lie, hide, and fake and ignore and pretend that everything's okay. But no one will say that to us unless we create an environment that makes them feel safe to say that to us. But if we're going to fly off the handle anytime, everybody, anytime somebody criticizes us, you did this to me. Well, you did this to me. It's not, a balancing, it's not a balancing act. You did this to me. Oh my God, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. Tell me more. And when we give apologies, we give bullshit apologies, right? I'm sorry you feel hurt. You can't apologize for how someone feels. You can only apologize for what you did. 
And saying you're sorry doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means you take accountability for your actions. Like if you're, if you're holding a big bag and you turn around and you hit someone by accident, you turn around and you say, sorry, I know you didn't mean it. But you're not going to be like, well, if you weren't standing there. <laughs> well, I didn't mean it, so I don't have to apologize. No, you can take responsibility. It's the same thing with our friends, right? I'm sorry I said that. And if you add the word but after an apology, <laughs> then it's not an I'm sorry, but. It's not an apology, right? It's a justification or a rationalization. So if you have that issue with a friend, ask yourself, what environment are they coming into the friendship with every day. And by the way, you won't fix the environment once. Remember, it's those consistencies. It's the lots of little things. If you do something once, they may think they might get suspicious. And if you can say, I'm trying to practice this because I want to be a better friend, and I think that I may have not been the best friend that I can be to you, and so I'm practicing. I won't always get it right. Please tell me when I get it wrong. This is one of the problems with being human. It's messy. It's messy, that's why we're better together, right? So make them feel safe. Make them feel that they can tell you they're struggling or that they're unsure or that they're nervous. And sometimes it'll come out all wrong. Sometimes it'll come out as an attack, but it's not really an attack. It's really an expression or a call for help. You show up with empathy, just like I want leaders who ask me about the millennial question to have empathy also. Same thing. Good? Good. Simon's talk took place in October of 2016, and when he and I spoke on the phone, it was less than one month later, actually the morning of election day. Oh, it's been a mess, hasn't it? You know, um, But I think we get the politicians we deserve. Um, I think not until we take accountability for how we act will we get politicians that reflect the populace. You know, we're the ones who are divided. We're the ones who don't listen. We're the ones who are narcissistic. We're the ones who put our self-interests ahead of others or the groups. Like, it's us. And, and, you know, our politicians hold up a mirror to us and it's pretty ugly. Well, that's us. We're pretty ugly. So I think, I think we all need to take some accountability and, you know, I mean, just, just look at the way people talk to each other. They talk at each other, even about the election. Nobody's actually listening to try and understand and find out why somebody would choose one candidate or another to truly understand their challenges, their stresses, the, the, the feelings they may have. And their feelings are legitimate, you know, their feelings are all legitimate, regardless of which population. Um, and so... I, I think we've all done a pretty bad job of listening and trying to understand the stresses that 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 those who may choose a different candidate uh, may feel. Going back to the millennial discussion, and I think it goes beyond just the millennials, but your call to action to be empathetic and that we all need to help one another is definitely important. However, we can receive all the help in the world, but sometimes it takes a drastic life change or a turning point to spark someone to get up off the couch and make an effort, you know? I mean, it's twofold. They, you know, they don't get to play the victims either. You know, um, yes, uh, older generations uh, need to take uh, some accountability and take um, some care and, and demonstrate empathy. But at the same time, you know, the millennials themselves need to raise their hand and say, I'm willing to do the hard work that it will take to overcome some of the challenges that I may feel or experience, that I'm willing to be open to new perspectives and maybe if something's uncomfortable, it doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means that it's difficult. So I think, I think if, if change is supposed to happen, uh, then, then more than one party needs to take accountability. Right, as is the case with most change. As is the case of everything on the planet. Does it concern you at all, the direction that younger generations are leaning? I mean, I think, 
I have concerns as much as every generation has its own unique concerns, you know, um, but I'm not worried. Um, I, I'm optimistic. Um, and I believe, I believe we have what it takes to, to rise, to, to, to help a generation rise up and be more powerful than, than any other generation in the past. Yeah. It's just coaching the older generations to be patient with the younger generation. Maybe that's, maybe your next talk should be about patience. You're just going to have to wait for that one. <laughs> well played. Well played. Um, so just a couple of things before we let you go. One is I'd like to take this opportunity to ask what you've been working on. What do you have going on? Um, well, I'm really proud of this, this book, this new little book called Together is Better. You know, I produced it to be a gift. Um, it, it has things in it that are impossible to digitize. For one, it's illustrated, which makes it more difficult to digitize in some, in some formats, uh, your traditional Kindle or Nook, for example. Um, um, but it also has uh, a scent. It's infused with the scent of optimism. Um, and that's impossible to, to create in a digital format. Um, and the first page is, it says to and from, in other words, it was designed to be given as a gift, a gift to someone we want to inspire or a gift to say thank you to someone who inspires us. And, uh, I want it to be this most analog human experience where you give someone something and say, thank you. Uh, I, I'm really, I'm really proud of it. It's, it's a sweet little thing. And what does optimism smell like? What does a Beethoven symphony sound like? Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> it has high notes and low notes and full of, uh, full of emotion. Very nice. And our last question is how we end every episode. If you went 10 years back and met yourself, what's one thing you would share with him? Only 10 years? Yep. Um, if I went 10 years back, what would I say to myself? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, would, I would urge myself to be patient. You know, it, it's uh, when you believe in something bigger than yourself, you can't, quote unquote, convince people to see the world the way you see it. You have to inspire people. And the more you make yourself a servant to those around you uh, to serve a cause greater than yourself, uh, what ends up happening is others join you in that cause and they share the message for you. And, uh, and it takes time. And that's okay. Um, so, you know, I, I, I have been and continue to still be somewhat impatient with things. Um, but I can tell you that this journey that I've been in for the past decade, I, I can't imagine doing it any other way. Simon, thank you very much for taking the time to do this. I, I'm so glad we had a chance to talk this time around. Uh, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. If you've been enjoying what we're doing here, please head over to the iTunes podcast page and leave us a glowing review. Thank you very much. Next week, we'll hear from Milisutando Bangela, an award-winning writer and blogger and the arts editor of The Mail and Guardian. Her writing focuses on issues of race, gender, and class in post-apartheid South Africa. Love is a result of balance in nature. Just as we have black, we have white. Just as we have up, we have down. Just as we have night, we've got day. Just as we have left, we've got right. Our thanks to Simon Sinek and everyone at Creative Mornings. This episode was produced and edited by S. Mateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios in collaboration with S. Mateo Music. This week's rooster comes courtesy of Inga from the Netherlands. Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning. Remember, it's singular. And use hashtag PodcastCM when you tweet at us. For a complete archive of talks or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com. Click, click,